Colloquium, Episode 2, Blind Spots, David Mack on Daredevil, End of Days. Welcome to the second episode of Colloquium. My name is Marcuson, and this is my new comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. I recently had the opportunity to talk with the incomparable writer and illustrator David Mack. David is best known for his innovative, creator-owned series Kabuki, and his daredevil stories at Marvel Comics, including Wake Up with Brian Bendis and Parts of a Whole and Vision Quest, which feature his character creation Echo. David has painted numerous covers for series like Alias and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer miniseries Willow Wonderland, and he worked as an illustrator on Dexter Early Cuts, an animated series for Showtime. David has also written and drawn a children's book called The Shy Creatures. For this cast, David and I discussed the intricacies of his most recent series, Daredevil End of Days, an amazingly crafted collaboration with comic book legends Bill Sienkiewicz, Klaus Janssen, Brian Bendis, and Alex Maliev. The mysteries in Daredevil End of Days are spoiled throughout this cast, so if you haven't read the book, you should come back to this at a later date. We also talk about David's brush and ink paintings that were on display earlier this month at the Century Guild Gallery in Chicago, along with work by famous painters Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele. David's paintings will also be featured at the Century Guild Gallery in Los Angeles starting July 27th. Here's David Mack on the legacy of Daredevil, the need to draw cats quickly, and what it's like to create a great mystery with his best friend. Hello? Hey, it's, hey, it's me. Hey. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, how's California treating you? Oh, no complaints. Just, you know, just trying to keep up with deadlines and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I thought we'd start out by talking about uh, your art being featured at the Century Guild Gallery here in Chicago. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I was sad I missed the big opening that happened a couple weeks ago. So how did that night go for you? Uh, well, really, really good. I was really happy with it. I, I just got back from this um, design conference in Barcelona, and so I didn't actually know I was going to be able to be there because they had talked about working out to have me there at the opening night. And it really hadn't worked out. And so uh, I ended up you know, getting like a, a last minute flight that Saturday on June 15th when the opening opened up. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I got there just in time. And uh, it was a really fun event. There were you know, a variety of different people there. And it was great to uh, you know, meet the uh, Jerry who runs the, the gallery. And I didn't know what pieces of mine they they had selected or or how they were going to present it so mm-hmm. it's kind of fun for me as a viewer to you know walk in and and see how they had selected my own stuff but then really enjoyable to see how they had presented like the the Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele work on the walls as well mm-hmm. yeah i saw pictures it looks like people had a great time at that opening so how did, exactly did the gallery come about 
Uh, there's a fellow named Tom Nagovin who founded the Chicago Gallery Century Guild. And after he found, after he cultivated that gallery there in Chicago for a while, he moved to Los Angeles and his protege, uh, Jerry Suki, took it over in Chicago. And Tom formed a new gallery of the same name, Century Guild in Los Angeles in, in Culver City. Um, sort of like where the, the gallery row is in Culver, mm-hmm. right, right across the corner from the Corey Helford Gallery, um, which a lot of friends of mine were showing in also. And I, I knew Tom from other things. I would see him around at other places, and we were friendly. Um, and then maybe he saw some of my Russian ink figure drawings on Facebook, and he he said that he, he really liked those really simple um, kinds of works that I'd done. And if I would bring some of them to his gallery in LA, so, and discuss it with him. So I brought like a whole bunch of them and he liked the idea of doing a gallery show in Chicago and there. So mm-hmm. he ended up um, taking probably maybe like 70 or 80 drawings because I, I have a lot of these kind of drawings because I've just done them sort of for fun, just sort of like drawings for probably like once a week, you know, probably for at least like the last 10 or 15 years, um, just like quick Russian ink drawings. Uh, Why did you start doing those, David? Well, for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm doing comics, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about comic books and storytelling, and I, I love that aspect, you know, of creating something. Um, but when I'm doing comics, it's such a, uh, you know, detailed experience. You know, drawing is an aspect of it, but there are so many other layers of it. So when I'm putting a book together, a story together, you know, every single visual is, has a relationship to the other visual and, you know, rhythm on the page and size and scale. And it's not really about, you know, doing gallery work or, or just, you know, a figure drawing or something like that. It's it's probably more like editing film, you know, you're you're finessing and detailing and tinkering and whittling and mm-hmm. moving things around until you get the right balance of what the story is. And so I, I love I love doing that. You know, I'm, I'm really passionate about doing that. But when I would not be doing that, it was just if I'm doing some kind of drawing just for fun, I would find myself just doing like really quick. Uh, imagery of just drawing people from life um, because it, it forces, for one thing, I think if I'm drawing another person from life, there's sort of a sense of a connection with humanity in a way because they're often with, with comics, you're, you're often working alone or in your own head. Um, and, you know, it's you and the story. But when I'm drawing someone from life, you know, there's this other person in front of you and what they're doing and their movement is kind of, uh, you know, there's a connection or a relationship to that with you drawing. Also, if you're drawing someone from life, even if they are holding a pose for a few minutes, you still feel, you don't want to, you still feel somewhat, uh, I don't want to say rushed, but you do, you, you do realize there's a time factor to, to catch this. A so cramp I, factor. Yeah. <laughs> I think I like the fact that it forces me to draw very quickly. And I think when you're forced to draw very quickly, and from life, it forces you to make a lot of quick decisions about what information to leave out without fussing over it too much. Mm-hmm. 
So it's been just a really good exercise for me for many years because of those things. And then you can often have an epiphany or discovery in the process of that that you can then bring into your other work that you can fine-tune on your, your comics or your storytelling, especially in terms of what information to leave out. You know, when you're looking at a, some, a human right in front of you, there's so much detail and information. And, you know, it's really about, you know, 99.9% of this information is not going to show up on your paper. So what's, what's the most direct information to capture, to suggest, you know, what's the, what's the 1% you can use to suggest the other 99%? Mm-hmm. And that's really useful in comics as well. And in storytelling as well, because a lot of time you, you start out with a lot of information, you sort of find yourself whittling it down uh, to get, you know, the most succinct, uh, concentrated, you know, aspect of and direct aspect of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of cats in the gallery as well. Is there a difference in how you approach those? You have to draw faster usually <laughs> with the cats. Cats, uh, yeah. I mean, with humans, you can say, oh, you know, hold that just one more second. You know, okay, I'm finished with your arm. You can move your arm. But if you move your head that way, it doesn't work as well with cats. So, yeah, maybe they're lounging around for quite a bit. Um, but it, it seems like they're lounging around for quite a bit. And as soon as you start drawing them, they'll start moving around. Mm-hmm. So it, drawing cats forces you to draw very quickly. And I think, you know, using the, the technique that I used with the, Im- the images that he has on display, which is taking a large, like, sumi brush and then dipping it in uh, ink, just drawing to ink, that uh, is, is really conducive to, to drawing really quickly. Mm-hmm. I have my cat sitting next to me cause I was worried that he was going to be up and about meowing mm-hmm. when I did the interview. <laughs> He's being good so far. So what is the, uh, the process for doing, uh, the brushing? How do you go about it? What's the technique? Well, um, with all of my stuff, I don't have a completely fixed method and every time it almost feels like you're, you're starting brand new every time like I, I usually feel that way I, I can look at a body of work that I've already done especially in comics and I think uh, well here's all those books with all this information and all these um, stories so you know clearly I I must have known what I was doing and I made that and I must have known how to do it and then whenever you're doing the current thing you still feel like you're there without a map and you still feel like you're kind of discovering something for the first time and problem solving, really. Um, but, you know, that's the fun of it. But uh, in general, the rod strokes are I just I just have a, a, a brush and I just dip it in ink. And, uh, you know, some so sometimes with with a large brush that way you can get. Depending on the pressure that you apply, you can get really thin line or you can get, you know, large brushy swaths of of ink. Um, so there's that aspect of the pressure and there's the aspect of what paper you use and often just, you know, sort of the atmosphere, you know, what, what the, the model is maybe bringing to it as well. Mm-hmm. And sort of how comfortable and relaxed they are, how some, some people are really good models just because they have a really interesting physicality, but they might not be a professional model. So they, um, can't hold still very well. So, that, so it just forces you to, to draw extra quick, but you still, it might be better that you're drawing extra quick. It might be more interesting for the drawing. And sometimes they'll move over and over. And so you might, but you might like every time, every movement they do, you go, oh, that would have been a great drawing to start with. 
So you draw how their arms are the first time, and then when they move their arms a different way, you draw how their arms are the second time, and eventually you end up with multiple arms, but maybe that just looks better for the drawing. So the fun thing about this exercise for me, you know, for the last 15 years is it's uh, unlike the, sto the storytelling in comics where, you know, very much I'm, I'm going for a specific thing. So there is kind of an end result in mind in a way everything fits together. I, I don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, I, it's, it's a very liberating experience because I don't have any pressure of it has to look a certain way or it even has to look like the person or it has to communicate anything in particular. So that's the fun of it is that I just dive in and then you get surprised by whatever turns the process take. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's that's really kind of the magic of it. You know, the magic of the the hand-drawn quality and uh the factors of uh the medium and the materials and then the factors of, you know, the person you're drawing. Well, it's absolutely gorgeous. I was really impressed when I went to the gallery because I had seen some of the pictures of the art before, but Seeing them up close and the detail in them was amazing. Oh, thanks. I'm really glad to hear that. Well, I know that um, obviously your work is influenced by Japanese culture, and I know you've been to Japan many times and you studied the Japanese language. I've been there myself, and it's my favorite place I've ever been. So I was wondering, you know, what you like best about visiting that country. What specific influences do you feel it has on your work? Well... Probably what I'm most known for, the story Kabuki. You know, I have seven volumes of that, so I've probably put the most work into that story as far as comics and, and story. You know, it, it's almost every volume is set in Japan. So there's a lot of, you know, thought of uh, things inspired by, uh, you know, Japanese culture and setting uh, that, that went into the book. Um, when I'm there... I, I really enjoy the aspect of, you can see like the layers of uh, centuries right on top of each other existing at the same time. That's what I like best about it too. Yeah. It's amazing to see these multiple times existing all at the same time right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't see that in the United States. Yeah, the, the United States is so large that um, eras, move, what would you say, move, would say, I'm trying to, what's the right word for this? Um, I would say move uh, horizontally because it's so big. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of interesting things that happen in different spots and different geographic locations. But a place, uh, other countries specifically, which, which are smaller than the United States and specifically Japan, which is much smaller, it's all in the same spot. So everything has to happen right on top of each other. So you have this vertical strata, you know, of, of all of these mm -hmm. things. Compressed, compressed more into a vertical strata of all of these eras happening right on top of each other rather than kind of spreading out. You know, the U.S. has this sort of tradition of starting in the east and then spreading to the west over time, but over space. Um, whereas in Japan, it's a lot more concentrated right on top of each other in the same spot. Mm -hmm. Well, back to the art, I talked to uh, the gallery owner, Jerry, for a long time. He was great. Um, and he mentioned that you were a big fan of Egon Shida, and his work is being displayed with yours there. What is it about his work that you like in particular? Yeah, I'm, I, I really do like Egon. I, I probably have actually studied Gustav Klimt more and probably more directly applied things I would learned from, from Klimt's sort of approach to 
two-dimensional versus three-dimensional right next to each other. So mm-hmm. I just love contrast. Uh, I try to put as much contrast in my work as, as possible. And Klimt had this incredible sense of contrast as far as 2D next to 3D and, uh, you know, interesting organic figures next to geometric shapes. And so I, I've, you know, consciously um, applied that quite a bit. Um, I don't feel like I've consciously, like I, I love Egan Sheila's work, but I, I probably haven't tried to consciously uh, emulate it as much. But what I do, to answer your question directly, what I love about his work is his directness of um, just drawing the line that he wants. And and if it's not exactly, you know, I, I do relate to it with, with what I do. And if it's not exactly the right line, he just puts, puts the right line there on top of it. And you can see a history uh, of the drawing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, the, and he's also sort of known for sometimes just staring at the model and not looking at his paper and drawing all the lines there based on what he sees but not double-checking it. So you get like a wonderful um, contrast of what the reality is that he's capturing versus the distortion um, where he's not, you know, looking over it and being finicky and fussing over a certain line that is just right. So you get this really interesting distortion that, you know, maybe is is more accurate to reality hmm. in terms of, you know, the feeling of the person and how they move and their movement. And I, I like that sort of approach. I, I think maybe that's a, that's a way I, could have, I sort of naturally approach it myself. Hmm. Well, I love the gallery, like I mentioned. Um, I know it's ending soon here in Chicago, but is your work going to be exhibited anywhere else in the, in the near future? Yeah, the Chicago um, Century Guild exhibit goes through July 7th. And then I have an opening in Los Angeles, July 27th, at the Century Guild in Los Angeles. And it's also Gustav Klimt, Egan Schiele, and myself. But it's a completely different exhibit. It's all different artwork. Oh, what kind of artwork is it? Um, it's it's comparable, um, but it's it's completely it's not the same images uh, traveling from Chicago to Los Angeles. It'll be a completely different show. Um, when I when I had brought my work to the Los Angeles gallery. He took about 70 or 80 pieces. And then I didn't know which of those he was sending to Chicago and which he was keeping. So um, he probably sent about half of it to Chicago and then has the rest there. So it'll be an interesting surprise for me too, to see which, which images he selected and you know how he chose to present them. And he has completely different clips and Sheila there is also. All right, great. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Daredevil end of days. Uh, that just finished about a month ago. It's my favorite limited series this year, hands down. Um, so thanks for creating such a great story, first of all. But the first thing that really struck me about the book was that when it was announced with the creators that were assembled for it, it almost felt like this group of veteran rock stars getting together to form a super group. So <laughs> can you talk about how and when everyone came together on this project? I think we would love to think of ourselves as the traveling Wilburys of Daredevil. <laughs> I have Tom Petty stuck in my head. Thanks a lot, David. Yeah, yeah. Roy Orison, George Harrison. Yeah, that was, <laughs> um, yeah. It was first. I'm really glad that you connected to it and that you liked it. Uh, the way it started, I the there was an editor at Marvel Comics, Warren Simons, who's now the editor in chief at uh, Valiant, and he, 
I guess he was talking to Brian and I independently about different projects and he was suggesting different um, stories for me to, to write at Marvel. And I was talking to Brian about it. I was like, Oh, you know, I'm thinking of maybe writing this or have this take. And Brian uh, said, Oh, you know, before you commit to that, um, he, uh, Warren, same editor also mentioned, you know, this idea to me where do I, you know, do a, a final story in Daredevil. He's like, you know, but I haven't had time to do any of it. So maybe we should write that together. And, uh, that's really how, how it began. I thought, oh yeah. Wow. That'd be fantastic. And I had never co-written anything before. So I wasn't, I didn't really know how that would work. Um, cause, uh, when I'm writing something, you know, I sort of just agonize over every single detail and I, I, I couldn't, I, it would be hard to imagine having somebody, you know, like how it would gel. But, you know, Brian and I, you know, work together so much. We've, we've been best friends for, since 1993 and we started working together then. So you got his big break at Marvel because you sent some of his work in to Marvel, I believe, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, Brian's an amazing writer, so I'm sure he would have ended up wherever he wanted to end up anyway, just based on, you know, how, how skilled and talented and persistent he is. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I was writing Daredevil at Marvel, uh, Joe Quesada. I met him at a convention. I gave him my first Kabuki volume. And a few days later he called back and he said, Oh, I really love this. Just give me a call on the phone. I really love this Kabuki volume and I really love your writing in it. He said, I really hope someday we can do some work together with you as a writer and me as an artist. And, uh, you know, a couple things were mentioned that, that didn't pan out. And then a couple years later, I had just started a brand new Kabuki series at Image Comics in 97. And I got a call out of the blue from Joe Posada saying, uh, you know, I'm going to take over a, a few Marvel books. And this is what would be Marvel Knights. And he said, you know, if you can choose your own book, you can write and draw your own book at, Con at Marvel if you want a character, which is a crazy, amazing call to get. Right. Out of the blue. And then I said, well, I would love to do that, but I just started this brand new Kabuki series at Image Comics, and I'm writing it and drawing it, and uh, a new issue comes out every two months, but you know, it takes me every bit of the two months to, to draw this Kabuki story, so I can't responsibly commit to, to drawing another thing at the same time, but he said, oh, well, um, maybe, you, you know, can you write another book? And I was like, yeah, sure, I count me in for that. So then he called back and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, Kevin Smith is writing the first Daredevil story with Joe Casada doing the art and Paul Miotti doing the inks. And he said, after Kevin Smith, if you can take over writing Daredevil and then we'll work together on that. And I said, perfect. You know, I, I grew up on Daredevil and it would be amazing just to, you know, to con continue sort of where my childhood, you know, appreciation of Daredevil left off, you know, which was very much the Miller Jansen era. Mm-hmm was very much, um, you know, my influence on Daredevil. And so, yeah, it was great. I got to work with, uh, with Joe Quesada, you know, sort of, uh, taking over right after the Kevin Smith, uh, run and then working with Joe and Jimmy. And in the process of that, we were doing covers where at first Joe was like, Oh, you should do all the covers and, and paint them. And, uh, because, you know, I was just writing, he's like, yeah, that way you can, you, know, you can do some art on the cover. And I said, well, and I would, you know, I would really, you know, you have a great look. I'd really like to, you know, I think your look is right for this. I think it might be too drastic if the cover is so different from the inside. So he told me just to, to paint the cover for the first issue. And for the other issues, 
he asked me to send him like layouts of different cover ideas and then uh, Joe would draw them and then he'd send it to, to Jimmy and Jimmy would ink it and then they would send it to me where I would I would paint on top of it. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah, it was a really fun collaboration, you know, that, that worked out that way. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, it was sort of even it was, yeah, it was just really fun to, you know, to work in collaboration with these guys and, and the character. And so I would always I would get this FedEx box of the page and it was the original art, you know, fully inked, and I'm supposed to paint directly on top of the original art. So I'm always, you know, I'm like, wow, this is the original piece with these inks and I just have to make sure not to screw it up and Paint it and uh, send it back to them in this FedEx box. So, you know, the whole time I was working on Daredevil, I, you know, I was keeping uh, Brian update. I think he was doing a lot of um, work for McFarlane at the time with uh, Spawn and Sam and Twitch. And I was telling him about, you know, writing Daredevil and occasionally they'd ask for his advice about something. And he was doing a brand new creator owned series called Torso, which is a crime comic uh, based on the serial killer in Cleveland. Oh, yeah, I've read that. It's very good. Well, yeah, I think Elliot Ness was the police commissioner uh, in Cleveland, you know, after his uh, Untouchables era uh, mm-hmm. of his life. And uh, and Brian was from Cleveland, and he, he wrote this really well well done uh, crime story, and he did the art for it also. And so um, I I, had, I think it was like four or five issues, and I I packed them all into a FedEx box of the cover I just painted, and I sent it to Joe. And Joe, you know, called up. He's like, "Oh, what, you know, what's this book?" And I was like, "Yeah, this is my my best friend Brian, who, um, you know, been working with for you know almost all the '90s, and you know, so just giving you his new creator-owned comics that he writes, and draw, see what you think about it." And uh, he thought, "Well, you know, he 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 basically said his his artwork wasn't right for Marvel, but that he loved his writing." And he said, "You know, you guys should you guys should do something together, and we'll we'll hire him for Marvel." Mm-hmm. He also said, you know, what's the story on this guy? Is he a flake? You know, is he a weirdo? <laughs> consummate professional, you know, consummate professional. Um, you know, Brian's, I, I met Brian when I was about 20 and he was maybe 25 or 26. So mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a little older than me and, you know, sort of like a big, big brother to me when I was starting. And, you know, I, I was very, I was, I was a very young 20 year old. Even that's when I, I started working on Kabuki. But, you know, Brian already had like a sense of career. You know, who's really helpful in sort of cultivating that in myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I told that to Joe and it's like, no, you know, totally. Cause you'd be amazed at how many super incredible, talented people are in comics, but they have a lot of difficulty working with others or they might have questionable social skills or questionable professional skills, even though they're. And it's funny that he asked that about Brian, because obviously Brian's the opposite of that with his work ethic and the way he's able to work with a lot of different creators over time. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the funny thing. There are, there are incredible people out there, but a lot of the editors are, they have to weigh the balance of, will this guy actually, if we hire him, will he actually turn it in? You know, that's one of the main things they have to, they have to think about. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, I told him, you know, how amazing it was to work with Brian these years and how he's a great professional. And he said, yeah, let's get, let's get, uh, you guys on a project immediately. And what do you guys want to do? And so this is funny because it actually relates to the origin of Daredevil End of Days in a way. We said, um, we want to write a Nick Fury story. We're going to co-write a Nick Fury story, Brian and I. And, uh, we want Bill Sienkiewicz to do the artwork. And, um, Bill was into it. Bill was up for doing the artwork. And then also, uh, Jim Steranko had been a mentor of mine, like, since the, 
mid nineties. Like he, he came to my table at a convention and said, you know, people are telling me about this Kabuki book and your work and that I would really like it. So, you know, let me see it, you know? So I gave him these Kabuki books and then he, uh, you know, he called me out. He would, he would like call me up in the middle of the night, like two or three <laughs> in the morning. And we would have like these long talks for hours in the middle of the night about storytelling. And he would always end, you know, conversation with, you know, well, if there's anything I can do to be of help with you, David, just let me know. And That's so fantastic. I said, yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, I, you know, like 20, 21, 22 years old you know, during that. And, and like I said, I was a really, I was a really sort of small, young, uh, young, you know, I was focused on, you know, all through college, I was focused on making my books and making, you know, make my first Kabuki volume when I was in college. I was focused on that, but, um, you know, I probably myself had sort of questionable social skills and sort of interacting with, you know, uh, people on an adult level or something. So this guy was an incredible mentor to me. And it was just amazing that someone that I respected so much would just even take my work seriously. And so eventually I said, yeah, you know, you, you keep asking, you keep offering to do something. I'm, I'm putting this Kabuki volume, all this Kabuki story together in one collected volume. And I would love it if you write an introduction for it. And he did. So he, Jim Stranko wrote the introduction to my first Kabuki volume. And then later when I started at Image Comics, uh, he, he would keep offering that. And I said, well, I'm doing a brand new series of Image Comics. Would you do, you know, a variant cover for the for very first issue? And lo and behold, Jim Stranko painted, you know, fully painted Stranko Kabuki cover for the for the first image. I remember so, that too. Yeah, so we, we were we were still constantly in contact. And I said, wow, you know, we're going to do this Nick Fury story, but I would love to involve Jim Stranko in it. I wonder if we could get him to do some covers for it. And Brian and I were completely stoked about that because we loved, you know, we grew up learning from Stranko and we grew up learning from Bill Sienkiewicz too. So it was amazing that Bill was in with us from the beginning, even though he didn't really know either of us that much. <laughs> he was still such a great guy. I mean, this was probably 98. So, um, yeah, this was right around probably the first few times I, I met. Well, I probably met Bill in the context of this project, you know, with Brian and I going to write a Nick Fury series for Marvel and, and Bill Sienkiewicz doing the art. And then, uh, yeah, we really wanted Jim. So we met, Brian and I met with Jim at San Diego and we're pitching him ideas and telling him how it was going to work. And it's, you know, it even had the possibilities of the way we did with end, end of days where if all he wanted to do was covers, that was cool. But if he wanted to do, uh, a scene or a sequence inside the story in a different style, we sort of had like different timeline ideas worked out like the same way we ended up applying it in Daredevil end of days. Basically, whatever he wanted to do, you were up for. Yeah, yeah. And I, the bottom line was, I think, I think um, Jim, he really, he expressed that he liked the idea of working with us in the project, but he had some kind of business issue with uh, Marvel at the time. So I don't know if it was resolved or what, but there was some kind of business wrinkle that was a problem for him at the time. And so the, the, the whole project ended up, you know, not really working out and instead um but joe wanted to get brian on something immediately so instead after my daredevil run uh brian and i did a run together which was brian's first daredevil run at marvel it was daredevil I, I wrote issues nine through 15 after kevin smith and then brian started writing with 16 through 19 and i did the artwork for those and it was just like a really Really personal story for both Brian and I. That's the Daredevil wake up story, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Daredevil wake up, which which also t relates to Daredevil end of days, you know. Of course, right? <laughs> 13, 14 years later. 
so yeah, that the, the kid uh, that we introduced in the wake up story, uh, Timmy, you know, years later in Daredevil End of Days is a teenager now. And uh, the first Daredevil wake up story was, you know, it was uh, sort of a first person investigative narrative with Ben Urich as the as the central character that leads the the reader through the story and wake up just as it as it became later in Daredevil End of Days. So both of those stories were kind of we sort of looked at them as kind of like a bookend in a way um, for us, you know, of you know all this other Daredevil stuff in between, but they they had a relationship and and there was an interesting you know time that they had in between. Um, so how did End of Days actually get off the ground then? Well, then uh, we, you know, we, we recruited Sienkiewicz for the project. We didn't get to work with him before, so now was our chance to work with him on this. And um, I think Warren Simons was already in touch with Klaus Janssen for this, had him in mind as well. So we thought, fantastic, we've got Klaus Janssen and we've got Bill Sienkiewicz, both guys that, you know, Brian and I grew up reading, you know, really our definitive Daredevil character, you know, was really helped, created and molded by both of these creators. Um, and then, you know, Alex Maleev was on board and, you know, we, which is, which is plenty of people. I mean, you know, we, we would have, it, it, we did, it wasn't really a thing we were having like every creator from Daredevil throughout history to do, you know, <laughs> that would be a logistical nightmare. Like the amount of people we had was already, was already a lot and plenty. And so we thought, okay, this is a good, this is a good group of people from different eras of Daredevil. Did you ever approach Frank Miller about possibly doing something for it? Uh, I didn't personally. I don't think. I mean, I've met Frank Miller a few times, and he's always been um, super nice to me. But I don't think he was interested in in doing anything with Daredevil after he did something to it already. Mm-hmm. After after he sort of made his mark with the character, I didn't really get the impression that he had any interest in doing it. So now was End of Days a story that you and Brian came up with? Yeah, Brian. That was the, that's the really fun magical thing about the process is we just started talking, and we you know, we would just have this massive conversation. You know, okay, you know, we would start with what our preconceptions of the book is about, and you know, okay, where does it start, and you know, how do we start it, and where where does it go, and that sort of thing. And and Brian had I think Brian introduced the Citizen Kane sort of approach to it which was like a great way to, you know, tell about the whole character's life and the ripple effects of their life, you know, through the reflection of all these other characters that he's encountered through his time. And, and I like the idea that none of them are necessarily objective. So when, when Ben is talking to all these characters to get a piece of the picture, you always, the reader and Ben always has to keep in mind that what these read, what the characters are telling them are from their own point of view or from their own agenda. It's not necessarily the facts, you know, as Ben would see them. Uh, and so, yeah, we just started talking about, you know, where it starts, you know, where it goes, what are some interesting points. And we kind of had like the beginning really worked out in the first conversation. And we sort of had like some basic ideas of, of points it would hit and where it would end up. But we didn't really work out the ending in, in detail a whole mm-hmm. lot. Um, and there was also, I, I have a brother named Stephen Mack and I also, he, he was sort of like more of a Marvel historian and Daredevil historian than I was. So I said, Hey, you know, here's this conversation I just had with Brian. Um, let me know what you think about that and give me any notes or what you think would be some cool interactions between, you know, Ben and talking to these characters. And my brother came back with like a whole bunch of amazing notes that were, that really gave me the germs for a lot of the scenes 
a lot of the Punisher scenes and a lot of the scenes with um, uh, Gladiator and, you know, a few other people, he, he would, like, give me, like, a whole bunch of notes, and I would, I would select the ones that were right, you know, for the story and sort of, you know, fit them in and elaborate them and, you know, and, and go back and forth with Brian, you know, about it. So, yeah, it would just be like, yeah, we'd have a conversation. We'd go, okay, that's, I think that conversation is the first issue, you know. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were a bit hesitant to work with a co-writer because you hadn't done it before. What was the process? How did you guys go about writing it? I'm, I probably would have been hesitant if it was just about anybody else because it was Brian. Like, even though it sounded like an interesting experiment and challenge, I was, I was totally ready to do it with Brian just because I like working with him so much. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it would have seemed odd to me because I know like when I'm making Kabuki and you know, I'm, I'm laboring over every little detail, you know, I'll spend time thinking about, you know, where every, each and every caption and balloon word balloon goes. And, and I'm still, I'm still cutting uh, text, you know, in the word, in the, in the word balloon stage. And I'm still, I probably cut like in general, when I write a script, when it comes back to the, uh, when it comes time for the lettering, I usually am cutting at least 50% of the lettering and, and the script out at the lettering stage Wow. that I thought was going to be there the whole time. But the interesting enough, that same thing happened with Daredevil End of Days. Um, when the art would come back from the artist, which is a really interesting part of the process of, of this, the, some, the artists, they say so much with what they, what they do, with the ambiance, with the tone, with the body language, with the facial expressions. Mm-hmm. So you realize like, oh, this guy only needs to say 10% of what he thought he was, we were going to say because his face says the rest. Or, you know, we just don't want to obscure how amazing this artwork because the tone and the shadows and the feeling of it is, is, is better than, you know, the data that you're getting from, you know, the mouth. And, and it's a mystery. It's a mystery story. So you always want, you sort of write everything that you think of at first and you still fine tune it into what you think is a full script. But when it comes back from the artwork, you always sort of want to err on the side of it being beautiful and mysterious and you wanting more rather than you feeling like that, you know, that was too much information. Right. As you mentioned, End of Days is a mystery. It's a great mystery that follows Ben Urich, the Daily Bugle reporter, who sets out to find out what happened during Daredevil's final days. And what I really like about the story is that Ben's this, he's the narrator and he's a reporter, so he's trained to look for the truth, but he's also the one kind of character from the Daredevil mythos who seems rational. He's on the level. Everybody else seems a little bit crazy. Yeah. Can you talk about Ben and why you chose him to be the guy that we follow through the story? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Um, Daredevil is a very complex and interesting character, and we love Daredevil, but he's not, from his own perspective, he might think he's objective, but he's not really an objective character. You know, he has his own things that are haunting him that he's constantly... I mean, he's a character kind of like Batman who has, and kind of like a lot of real people, works this way in real life too. Uh, Whenever I'm writing a character, I usually think, with this character as an adult, what as a child formed this character? And often, if it's an extreme character, it's usually there's some kind of traumatic event that happens in childhood that makes the character or a real person as an adult then continually find themselves putting themselves back in that situation. Usually it's a traumatic situation that they do not, that they're not in control of. Mm-hmm. And then as an adult, they, they attempt to recreate the situation, but this time reenacting it in a way where they think they're in control of the situation. And that becomes a cycle. You see this with, with 
people in real life who have had like some kind of traumatic event as a child, they'll often be recreating it over and over, but they think that they're now controlling it. They're, they're re, they're, they're reenacting it, but they're trying to correct it at the same time over and over. Um, you know, Batman is a good example of this, you know, as a character who is confronted with crime as a child and it takes his parents and he's not in control. He spends the rest of his adult life confronting criminals where now he's trying to be in control and reenact that, but in a way where he's rewriting it in a sense over and over and over. Right. And it's that, it, you know, there, there's something maybe positive about that to a degree and uh, maybe you're exercising something about it to a degree, but at a certain point, it, it's kind of an obsessive compulsive disorder too. <laughs> and Daredevil, uh, you sort of have to break the cycle at a certain point. And Daredevil doesn't seem to ever be able to break that cycle. You know, as, as, a, as a child, you know, here's somebody in danger and then he shows how he's instinctively heroic that he risks his own life, saves the person from being hit by a truck as a child, but then is in a sense, you know, punished for it and, and loses his sight because of it. And in, in a way it would be a great origin for a villain actually, but instead he's such a heroic good person that he, uh, you know, follow the law career that his father wanted for him, but is still haunted and has mixed feelings about all those reactions with, with his father as well. And so still has to be the fighter that his father didn't want him to be uh, in, in a closeted way in, right. in a costume. And he's, he keeps almost reenacting all of that aspect of, of his father as a fighter and then dying and also him saving somebody, but this time him, him escaping the situation. Um, you know, a, as an adult and, you know, and because of that, a, a lot of his relationships have suffered and uh, it introduces a lot of instability and unpredictability into his life and his relationships. And while he is an interesting detective in his own way, because he's constantly, because he's blind, piecing the world together, making sense, making new order of the world as he experiences it, there's a, there's ways that he has his own no pun intended, blind spots and, you know, emotional blind spots as well. And I, and I like the fact that when things like that happen, that like, you know, him actually being blind, there's, there's usually like a physical, uh, sim symbolic, a, a physical symbol of the traumatic event, you know, as a child. And with him, it's, it's being blind, but I think it's, it's in a way a symbol of, of emotional blind spots that he has as well. So, you know, you could tell a first person story from Daredevil's point of view. And it'll be really, really interesting because he's such an extreme character with a unique point of view. But then you also have to realize that point of view isn't necessarily completely accurate or factual or taking in the whole picture. And right. so with Ben, we felt like what a great opportunity to piece together Daredevil's world from a guy who, who did know him and does have some insight into his character, but is also possibly a little bit more objective. Um, than Daredevil himself was. And you'll need kind of need that objectivity when you're interacting with all of the other characters as well, who are also all extreme characters. And it gives you this kind of, um, it's like a Dante's Inferno story. And he's sort of the character that can lead the reader through all these levels of Hell's Kitchen and levels of this, these oddities of the Marvel Universe. And he, and it's fun because he starts, because he's a street level character, Ben Yurick, the reporter, he starts at the street level, you know, he starts where he thinks would be his, his best access point. And then gradually he starts, you know, sort of instead of like climbing up, you know, he shoots for the Avengers first. <laughs> right. 
they won't even talk to him. You know, so then he has to talk to street level. So instead of like climbing up and talking to more higher and important people, he's climbing down and down. You know, next he's talking to you know uh, reform criminals, then he's talking to the Punisher, and he's talking to complete crim- dangerous psychopaths. Uh, you know, people in jail. It just keeps it keeps getting worse and worse, and sort of lower and lower on on the rungs of people that will talk to him rather than vice versa. Yeah, I mean, that's the most fascinating thing. I think he was the perfect choice because when he's trying to work out what happened by visiting all these people that Matt Murdock was close to, it's a window almost into the complexities of Daredevil's life. But it was really sad, too, because everyone seemed to move on from Matt Murdock without him. And the anger and the frustration of the characters who seemed to be set off just by hearing Ben Urich bring up Daredevil. And for most of End of Days, Daredevil's legacy seems to be this series of dysfunctional relationships and downward spirals, really. So I guess that's really a long way of asking you, how do you view Daredevil's effect on the people in his life? Well, that's interesting because Ben has to keep, he has to put that in perspective. He has to sort of mention, you know, aside aside from the people that he's visiting who, who are, who are directly affected by Daredevil, but in many different ways, he also has to remind himself and the readers that, you know, Daredevil has, has saved so many people and given up so much. And it, it has cost him so much to be as helpful as he possibly could in the ways that he could be helpful to other people. Mm-hmm. So he constantly has to underscore that aspect of Daredevil's heroism. Um, but you can't es- escape like the real life, uh, costs of the way that he chose to live his life, you know, especially in his later years. Do you think that Daredevil is the most emotionally tortured superhero in history? Um, I think there are other characters that are more outwardly, that more outwardly externalize that. The fun thing about it with Daredevil is because he, he, and this is what I like about Mark Wade's run, is that I feel like it's still there in Wade's run, but he uh, puts he he represses it, you know. Daredevil compartmentalizes certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, he has you know, a, you know, a guy who is a lawyer by day and a vigilante by night is the king of car- compartmentalization. Uh, and he's a guy who you know he has this religious aspect of his life, and he has his his father's bo- uh, boxing fighting aspect of his life, and he has all these compartments that um, he, he gives off the effect generally of having everything under control and being cool and relaxed and calm and, you know, glides through the city and has an angelic grace about him. Um, but what I like is that there's a lot percolating under the surface. Right. So I love that uh, Yurik's investigation leads him to the uh, lost loves from Daredevil's past. And he tries to find Black Widow. He visits Mila and Typhoid Mary, who's become an actress. And Echo is a college professor. But the best future version is Electra as a soccer mom. Can you talk about how you and Brian developed the ideas for Electra yeah. and the other former loves and what you wanted them to represent in the story? Yeah, um, I think that was a, with, with the very first issue, Brian and I had the conversation. We were like, OK, here's this conversation. Here's the broad strokes of the story. And here's what I think the first issue is. And then for the first issue, I think Brian pretty much like it came back with that, with the majority of the first issue and was like, okay, here's, you know, here's everything we talked about in one issue um, that sets us off. And now, you know, for the next issue, you know, you, uh, you, you do the scripts and then, you know, turn them into me and we'll 
So then I came back. I was like, oh, I think I think that's the phrase I use. I think I think you're going to like this, Brian. I, I think we have because I was like the next issue is him visiting all of his former loves because there's a lot of them are still accessible to a street level person in his in his place. Um, yeah, as an investigator and a reporter, he could still find most of them. And, you know, and there's one that is going to scare that, you know, scare him, especially because of his history with her, um, you know, because one of the last times or the last time he had met Electra, she stabbed him in the back. Right. Um, I was like, you know, so, you, you know, what's how is how is, you know, you always have to think, how is this character different, you know, 10 years from now? And I think I even said that to Brian. I think I think you're going to like Electra Soccer Mom or something. And he really got a kick out of it. But yeah, that, that was fun. That was that issue, uh, like the second and third issue in particular, at what well, the time, this is interesting, I, I ended up at first, I wrote them as one issue because at first under Warren Simons, we were going to have fewer uh, issues, but they were all double size. Oh. So I had, I had structured everything in a different way. And then uh, editor Steve Wacker came and said, no, you know, we can keep the first issue oversized, but all the other issues they're going to have to be no more than 20 pages each. So I went back and had to, I had to move a lot around to, to, cause you still want to end on somewhat of a cliffhanger. You want to have like a certain resolution for every episode and a theme to every episode, but you still want the last page or every, you know, chapter to propel you into the next one. So I went back and I, I kind of had to move a lot of scenes. Some scenes were scrapped, other scenes were added, and the majority of the scenes were moved around so they would have a good rhythm for the 20-page approach, you know, instead of like the 35-page approach or whatever we did for the first issue. Mm-hmm. So that was, but it, but it worked out for the better. I actually really preferred things broken up into that chapter. They had like a better rhythm that way too. So, um, you know, what became issues two and three uh, that was a really fun approach with Brian because I, I would, I would give him the script that, that I felt like, you know, here's, here's the script. And it was really interesting how he would come back with typhoid, with the typhoid Mary, for instance, or the extra thing and sort of streamline my dialogue, you know, down and, you know, introduced his own, um, uh, spins, you know, on, on some of the dialogue and stuff. And then we would, then we would discuss that and we would sort of debate, you know, how <laughs> I would fight over, we would fight over some word choices, you know, occasionally. It, it always ended up better. And then there were times where, where I would say, okay, well, I still think this, but I'll defer to you this. And there were times you would say, well, I think this, but I will defer to that. And then there were times, sometimes, where I would, I would read it later and I would think, I would go, no, I, I think you're right. Let's go, you know, we, we, would, we would be changing everything until the last minute, until we had to turn it in. We would be changing the dialogue over and over. So it was really that kind of a close-knit mm-hmm. uh, working relationship. You didn't fight over um, a poem, did you? Well, that's that's an int- I don't know how much of that story I should tell you, but that is an interesting story. I'll um, I'll put it like this. Oh no, I'd have to hear it. Okay, yeah. So when when it, when it was introduced, we hadn't we hadn't discussed the complete meaning of what Mapone was, and at a certain point, um, we realized that he had a different idea of it than I had a diff- than I had. And then uh, we we he said which was he had a great idea and I had what I felt like was a very interesting idea and uh, we both liked it but we thought I turned in like I, I said well, okay here's here's how you know the end story goes this this here's all the beats of this and then he goes oh I was thinking this and you're thinking that but this is where we should 
we should make because we had all these different reveals of different things and it was sort of what reveal do you make them a pwn reveal and we had a reveal of something else and then we decided okay i think this and you think this but actually let's not make it either of those let's make and it was actually turned out to be something that kind of came out organically in the story which was <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to spoil anything too bad if, if people haven't read everything when they hear this but it was uh oh, i'll let them know that there's spoilers in this oh okay okay <laughs> But yeah, it, it was a really fun organic process. We each kind of had our own backstory to what it was. And um, I, I eventually, when I when I did the dialogue, I sort of made uh, the Punisher kind of have a couple different um, – he sort of had a few different theories, a couple different theories of what it was because of different information. And we ended up like streaming that down quite a bit in the final issue – because we just really had to, we, first of all, we had to, we had a very small page count. We, we had, we had to, I actually had to leave scenes out that I wanted in the last issue because we didn't have enough space. Um, and we also wanted to keep the focus on the main characters and not too much of backstory or, or what wasn't the main reveals. But if you get the, uh, the hardcover has a, has 24 pages of extra stuff. Um, and a lot of it is art and it's completely worth getting just for the Bill Sienkiewicz, Klaus Janssen art processes in the back. And then I have some art processes as well, but there, there, at the very end, there are some early versions of some of the script pages of the final issue. And you can see like some of the Punisher's other theories that, um, of what the Mapone is sort of his working theories of what Mapone possibly was. And it gives you like a little, a little bit of insight, you know, some other approaches to it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the story, we did find out what Mapone is, and it's actually the daughter of Matt Murdock and Black Widow. So I love that reveal because, as we were talking about, much of the series shows the negative effect that Matt Murdock has on everyone around him. Yeah. But here's this one good spark, I mean, aside from being a hero, of course, but the one good spark in his personal life that shows that his legacy is more than just uh, pain for those around him. So I was wondering how you viewed Mapone's place in the Daredevil legacy. Well, what I liked is that after the eighth issue came out, we got a lot of people saying like, "Oh, is, is that the end? I want to see what happens next with these with these characters." That's a story that I'd like to see, and we we wanted it to end on a note like that, where it's over, but hopefully it's you know you 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 want to see what would happen next with these characters, and I feel like there's a lot of hope with the ending of the story. And uh, I, I like that about it. I, so I didn't really necessarily view. I mean, there there are some really dark and intense stuff, but I didn't want it to feel like a negative story or a completely doomed or without hope story. So I really feel like we did leave it on like an end of of hopefulness. And you know, it's it's sort of how it naturally. You know, every fighter. You know, you take a, a boxer or any athlete for that matter, you know, they have a limited shelf life of when you can perform at your peak condition. And, you know, Daredevil pushed that, he pushed that to the limit. You know, at a certain point, you, he, he knows that he's used up. He can't perform as Daredevil for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he's a smart enough guy. I mean, Daredevil's a really, that's the fun thing about writing a character like this. Daredevil is actually really smart. You know, Brian and I are not attorneys. And we're writing a guy who is smarter at so many different things than we are. And that's a really fun, challenging thing to do. So here's the guy who he's known for his physicality also, but that belies the fact of how actually very intelligent he is. 
So he, he's a guy who would have would have thought about this and would have, would have realized that he has a shelf life to to how long he can actually be Daredevil hmm. in the context in, in which he had before. And that's really interesting too because that comes across that he was smart that he did some planning, but he's not really in the book. So was that a challenge to <laughs> show that? Yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, Daredevil has this this presence. You start out the book, you know, with a with a freight train of an intense sequence that Daredevil is is in, and there's a couple of them, and you know he's all through the first issue. Um, but then you don't see him really. I mean, you see him like through people's flashbacks and representations of him, and there's stories of him throughout the series, but then not until the uh, the final issue did I get to do some scenes which sort of like led up right up to like his last days of what happened, you know, of what he was sort of doing right before the first issue began. So it, it was fun to, to do those images in consideration of, you know, what, how was he at that point? And it was almost like he had kind of turned in, he'd almost turned into his sensei stick in a way. He was like, he had turned into his father and his teacher at the very end in a kind of way, you know, like his father would be with him, you know, like, telling him not to fight and there's a better way of, you know, of not to fight. But he, but he sort of tells his protege that, um, you know, he, he, he never learned how not to fight. You know, he taught this, he's taught this guy everything he possibly could. The only thing he hasn't taught him is how, is how not to fight because he never learned that lesson. And that was sort of like the one lesson his father was trying to teach him. (laughs) And that's the, I mean, that's the other huge mystery in end of days is who the new daredevil is running around after Matt dies. And, um, you know, another big spoiler, but we learned that it's Timmy, it's Ben's adopted son, who saved Daredevil's life in Wake Up, which was a great twist. And it was, I don't know how many years, 12 years since that story. How did you come up with the idea to use Timmy? Was it something that you had wanted to do for a long time? It came out through the story organically. It didn't come up when we were discussing it. Um, you know, Brian, Brian had... I didn't really think when we were discussing it that this mystery Daredevil or who it was was that big of a deal. In fact, I, I initially thought that, you know, there were so many ideas that we didn't put in the story. So there will be points to talk about some of the initial ideas that didn't end up in reality. But I, I didn't think that it was going to be that much of a mystery of who he was. And then after, I think maybe the first issue, the first script, I said, oh, okay, you know, I know who this Daredevil is. It's got to be that little kid that we that we introduced, you know, before uh, in Wake Up. Because the, the, the reason, the fun thing about this is as an objective character as Ben Urich is and as, as an investigator, and you're getting everything from his point of view, so the audience is always in sync with Ben of what they're figuring out. They're figuring out almost exactly the same time Ben is figuring it out, and they're being introduced to information the same time. Right. But the one time we want the audience to be ahead of Ben is to show that even Ben has blind spots. And so you see that, like, this kid is in every issue talking to Ben at dinner, and he's trying to talk, and he's clearly disturbed about things, and there's all kinds of stuff he's working out. And, like, the last time we saw him, you know, he's a, he's a really short blonde hair as a kid. And so in the script, I told Klaus, oh, he's got really short blonde hair. And then Klaus drew, like, this really dark, like, black hair, like, black long hair. And at first I thought, oh, maybe that's a little inconsistent. And I thought, no, no, that's perfect, actually. That's perfect for Klaus because – Here's a kid who's dealing with identity issues. Yeah, you know, he's you know a kid in the high school. He would totally grow his hair long and dye his hair black. You know, he's still figuring out who he is, and he's we don't even know it yet, but he's putting on masks and everything at the same time. 
So I love the fact that he has all these identity issues and he's always and he's upset about Daredevil's death a lot. And he has that incredible history of his own father. You know, his uh, his own father was Leapfrog and he had to save Daredevil's life. And in a result, basically had to kill his own father to save Daredevil's life as a child. So here's a guy with a lot of baggage and a lot of weirdness and, uh, you know, is adopted and it was abused by his mother and then is, is raised by Ben Urich who adopts him. You see this kid talking to Ben throughout the story. Um, and it all seems perfectly normal, but then maybe by issue six, I, we give a tip of, of the information that all of a sudden the reader is able to piece the, I think the reader starts to form a theory that like, Oh, I know who this, this kid is the daredevil. They start, it's the first time they get ahead of Ben because Ben has his own personal blind spots and he's, you know, he's not going to think this kid is a part of He's not going to think his son, but, and also he's just so focused on Mapone and figuring it out. Of course he's not going to know. But if you look at the story, like there, there's so much stuff under Ben's nose the whole time. Like the kid is under his nose the whole time. And if you look back, you know, the, the girl is playing pool, you know, in the bar, you know, like in the same room as him, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a couple issues as well. So, yeah, there's a lot, you know, Ben's figuring out, he's in pace with the reader, but I, th- we want that point to realize, like, even Ben has his own blind spots. A- and the story is taking a toll on Ben. It, there's there's a, a, quite a bit of symbology that I, I like to encrypt in the story that I, I don't want it to be overt, but if you reread it, you'll start to pick it up. Every time Ben starts to visit, you know, a, a guy in a seedier level or a more disturbed level, it starts to take a physical toll on Ben, you know? Right. You know, he meets a guy in a body cast. Next thing you know, he's got a cast and he's his, you know, his thing is broken. You know, he meets a guy who's missing an eye. Next thing you know, his, his lens is cracked. He meets someone else who's, you know, beaten or bloody. Then the next thing he's beaten. And ble- Every you'll, you'll notice that Ben starts to physically take on the effects of the people <laughs> and the, the, the levels that he's, that he interacts with throughout the story. And uh, it continually takes a toll on him. That leads right into a, another question, which is he interacts with the Punisher in prison. And I know that the Punisher is one of your favorite characters growing up. Can you talk about, you know, why you wanted to involve him in the story? And in particular, what went into developing those prison scenes between the Punisher and Ben? That is an interesting story. Um, there is there's a lot of personal stuff both Brian and I put in the story, personal in the sense that, you know, we're, we're fans of Daredevil and we grew up with Daredevil as a child. And now we're, we get to collaborate with Klaus Janssen and Bill Sienkiewicz, guys that, you know, we learned from and grew up reading their books. And we get to collaborate with these characters that have personal connections to us for various reasons. So there's, there's that, but there's, I think there's also quite a bit of, of probably things from our own life that, I mean, when you're a writer, you probably can't help, but kind of when you're writing your story, it's almost like your laboratory to make sense of the rest of the world or, or your laboratory or sandbox to play around or uh, give an order to other things that you think about or in your life by giving, by giving them voice from other characters with extreme points of view. The wonderful thing is you can have, I, I think sometimes people assume that when they read something written by a writer, one of the characters is the writer's voice and is saying the writer's thoughts or what the writer thinks or the writer's agenda. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the fun about it is, for an interesting story, you take a lot of extreme characters with extreme points of view, and you just put them in the same room, and you have them interact. And you get to, you know, because the 
all, the writer or people themselves can be ambivalent. You can you can you can see the pros and cons of different situations and not be sure about it, but you can give characters with uh, intense points of view about them, put them next to each other, and have them argue it out. And it's an interesting way to just sort of explore some of those ideas. And the Punisher is a great a great extreme character, you know, especially against Van Uric. But it's also he's also sort of like a flip side extreme character in contrast to Daredevil as well. Mm-hmm. And in a way, he gets to have the last word, you know, because he, he says to Ben, you know, in the end, you know, he pushes all Ben's buttons. <laughs> and in the end, he's able to say, you know, well, you know, as much as he fought against it and said, you know, you should never kill anybody in the end. Look, Daredevil killed somebody. So really, you know, uh, he chose my way in the end. And it's hard to argue, you know, against that kind of you know, black and white philosophy that Punisher has. I, I think as a child, I was fascinated by the Punisher because, you know, his costume is black and white. His ideas are black and white. He sees, he sees things in a, in a, in a much more simplistic way, mm-hmm. um, but is still an incredibly intelligent person. And so we wanted that to come across. And before we ever revealed the Punisher himself, um, it, it's almost like the, you know, in Jaws, you know, you know, you don't even see the shark. You you see the fin. You see the results of the shark. Or <laughs> before you introduce the Punisher, uh, you know, if you're if you're going to visit the Punisher inside, you know, in an incarceration facility, uh, from the point of view of of Ben and where he is in his life, you know, it's a probably a traumatic experience. It's sort of an an, an odd and overwhelming experience. And that whole experience of Ben going being led into that prison to visit him. I wrote that I was going through a lot of very strange things in my my own life at that time. And I wrote all of those scenes after after visiting someone who was incarcerated myself. And so all of the the dialogue that the guard says to Ben as he is being introduced to the prison, you know, all the rules, that was almost verbatim exactly told to me. Yeah. I wrote it down. You know, I had this really, uh, I had a lot of very extreme experiences while I was working on the story. And you often write a lot of them down. And yeah, that was, there were, there were actual real world, uh, words, you know, were, were channeled into the, into the story quite a bit, especially in the Punisher scenes and especially in the, the scene where he, Ben is, is visiting the Punisher and, and Rikers. It's a, it's a weird feeling. Like when you're, when you're being led and doors are shutting behind you and heavy metal doors are coming closed and people are telling you how beyond this point they're not responsible for any mayhem that happens to you and, you know, here's the rules that you can't do and here's what may happen to you. And as you're being told this, you're led and the you know, steel doors are clanging behind and you're like, why would I ever go? I don't, I, I would never want to be in this in any case, let alone why am I willingly walking into this place? And it's a horrible feeling. And I, I think that came across in the book too. Yeah, you sense the you know the despair and you know the mayhem and the confusion and desperation you know with you know as as you go in there. So it's yeah, it's a it's a really weird feeling. So I yeah, I, I couldn't help but um, you know put some of that into the into that. It's, that's really what shaped that whole scene. You know, if if you look at it, I feel like it really helped the scene. Um, but if you were to lay it out, you would think like that's sort of maybe too much, too much page real estate to devote to them not even talking yet. Mm. But uh, I think it was helpful. Did it help you? 
you said you were going through some things. Did it help you to write that out in the in the book at all? Uh, I mean, you always you always wonder about. Um, I mean, you just you. I think when as a artist or a writer, you you're always working out that stuff. People say like it's helpful if you put it. I don't know if it's helpful or not. I think I think you just are compelled to do it because that's what's going on. You know, maybe in a sense, it gives you some it gives you some way to to order. It makes you think that you're making some kind of order or um, you know arrangement or trying to figure figure stuff out when you're doing it. You know, so maybe in a sense, it gives you something to focus on. Another character that's in the book is Echo, and that's a character you created in the first Daredevil story that you did, Parts of a Whole. And you did a follow-up with her in uh, Vision Quest. So what was it like for you to work on her again in End of Days? Oh, that, that was really fun. Um, you know, each of, the, each of the artists involved, one of the fun things about was that contrast of the styles. You know, we have the main through-line story with Ben Urich interviewing people with the art by Klaus Jansen and Bill Sienkiewicz. And then every time they interview somebody, that character gives their their recollection of like, you know, their sort of last um, uh, interaction with Daredevil. And then we sort of choose the artist of the group of artists that are working on this, of, of who of them was maybe most identified with that character to sort of uh, illustrate that kind of flashback. So it immediately gives something from their point of view. You know, it's not necessarily objective and you know it's coming from this person. So uh, with the Echo, the interesting thing with doing the Echo part, it was really the first the first character that on some level cooperated with, with Ben. It was like the first time <laughs> anyone kind of gave him a somewhat straight uh, response and said, yeah, this is what my last interaction with Daredevil was. Here it is. But even then, like we know that it's it's supposed it's supposed to show you that she didn't even you 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 sort of show the majority of what happened, but she doesn't. So you, so the reader knows more happened than what she even told Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the first time you get a semblance of somebody actually trying to cooperate with him until instead of you know telling him to take a hike. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really fun because it's an interesting character because when I first oh she's wrote, a great character I really like that character a lot. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated with the character that the life, the life the character has had. You know, I think I created her in '98, mm-hmm. and since then, you know, she's she, you know, Brian has written her in the Avengers. He's written her in Moon Knight, and uh, I think at the end of Moon, like I, I love the Moon Knight stories I read, but I haven't read all of them. Um, but I understand, I understand that at the end of Moon Knight, everyone's saying like, oh, you know what, you know, oh Echo, you know what's gonna, <laughs> I want, I want Echo. What, what's going on with Echo in the story? <laughs> that's the that's the next question I was going to ask you about. Yeah, I yeah. love that Moon Knight, and I know what happens to her. Yeah, so I, I love the Moon Knight too. I don't I don't want to spoil multiple um, series <laughs> for other people with, with the Daredevil story. But um, the fun thing is in this story, you know, everything in the story takes place like ten years in the future. So uh, you know, there's like there's almost like a throwaway line that basically you know tells how she came back and sort of sets the seed for another branch of Daredevil characters later in the story. Um, you know, later in the story that the hand and the ninjas, the hand sort of become significant. So every now and then we were sort of peppering little mentions of them throughout the story. And then gradually, increasingly, uh, they become more of a focus towards the end of the story. So you talked about, you know, what happens to Echo? Uh, a little bit. Um, not, it's, it's an interesting character because when I first was asked to write Daredevil by Joe Quesada, mm-hmm. 
in like maybe 97, 98, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to write this. Do you want, is there anything particular with me to write in the story? And he said, he basically said, write anything you want. Um, but I want you to create a brand new character in the story for Daredevil. He said, you know, the majority of Daredevil's rogues galleries, you know, the famous ones are kind of borrowed from Spider-Man and they're kind of the same people over and over. So he said, for this story, I want you to make a brand new Daredevil villain. And, uh, and that was really the reason why I created Echo. I thought, you know, here's an interesting character that I, I want you to be able to see the character's point of view. And, uh, you know, she's introduced as an antagonist. But one of the interesting things about her is she, Daredevil may, it does find, her, find, find himself drawn to her in a way because all of the different loves he's had in his life, I feel like he relates to them on one level, but there's many other levels he's very separate from them because, you know, ultimately his, his blindness and the way he sees the world is so drastically different from the way other people put together the world and piece it together. And I, I felt like with Echo, there's a, here's another character who has to constantly decipher the, because she's deaf, she has to decipher everything visually of the world to make sense of this audible world that she doesn't have access to and piece it together and suggest things maybe in a very complimentary and somewhat similar but opposite way that Daredevil has to do. And I thought that he would he would be fascinated by someone who almost does the reverse approach. Also someone who's very separate from the regular world that the majority of people experience, like like he would feel. And so maybe he would feel somewhat of a, of a connection and, and someone who's in a sense an, an outsider to the regular senses that most humans have. So I... I that was that was kind of the origin of the character, and it was interesting how the character turned from you know basically starting an antagonist you know or villain and eventually became a superhero you know in the Avengers and then eventually became you know working with Moon Knight and uh, it was really interesting to see the life that it was almost like when I was writing Daredevil I got to stand on the shoulders of all of these giants of creators that had worked on Daredevil before me who had created Daredevil and then imbued the character with such a rich history and I got to play with these characters in a way with creating echo it was almost like it was a, it was a token of giving back something to that universe that other people can then you know integrate into other stories mm -hmm. yeah and I hope we see more of her too because I just really enjoyed that character and I especially like that you did the art when she had the flashback scenes I liked all the art in the book actually and when Bill Sienkiewicz drew the kingpin I completely flashed back to daredevil love and war which is the first daredevil yeah, exactly. story i ever read it was perfect and i had to get that out right away and, and read it again because i just love that i mean daredevil is one of my favorite characters and that whenever i picture daredevil it goes back to that frank miller bill sinkevich graphic novel can you talk a little bit about um how you decided on uh, the painting of it how did you decide that you wanted to do different art styles yeah, it was it was very much like what you said, you know, with when Sienkiewicz did that that piece of Kingpin. Yeah, it was very purposely designed to you know, it's a brand new image, but it's very purposely designed to bring back his version of the Kingpin in your mind from Daredevil Love and War, you know, and, and conjure that era and conjure the whole story immediately in your mind. And that was a lot of the intent for a lot of the flashbacks is not only will it tell you the story that we're telling now and tell you the story that this character is telling of their last interaction with Daredevil, but we want sort of to immediately conjure that entire era of the whole Daredevil mythos 
and have it, you know, weave into this and have it in your, fresh in your head, of, you mm-hmm. know, all these wonderful errors that the character has. So that's, you know, that's why, you know, Alex Maleev would do, you know, something with the owl or bullseye and recall, you know, other stories that he was a part of in that era. And I, I feel like just what you said, you know, the Sienkiewicz shot of the Kingpin, immediately you think of everything of love and war, right when you see it. And that's one of the amazing magical powers of comics. You can suddenly you can draw one panel in a different style than the other panels, and it can harken back to like a whole through line of story with that character. And so I tried to do the same thing every time. Basically, my three main characters that I did uh, uh, pages for were were Echo. So with her, I tried to sort of make it reminiscent of of my work on Daredevil and Echo uh, when I had drawn both Daredevil and Echo stuff. And then also the Timmy character. And so from his perspective, uh, when he had flashbacks and when he, you know, talked about his interaction with Daredevil, um, I wouldn't make it somewhat reminiscent of the Daredevil wake up art that I did with Brian and recall that. Yeah, and I totally felt that as well. Because I'm like, I kind of remember seeing similar art in a previous Daredevil story and I had to go back and look yeah. at Wake Up again and read it. Exactly. Uh, and and the Purple Man. Um, when I was doing all the covers for Alias when Brian was writing Alias. And I did oh, some so good. Well, and he had this great Purple Man story there. And so I did some Purple Man covers and when I did the Purple Man uh sequence I, I tried to recall I, I looked back at the covers I did for Purple Man and I tried to sort of do that approach for him that I did with alias. Well I have a, just a few more questions. I can't believe it's already an hour and twenty minutes. Sorry about yeah. that, David. <laughs> so it dawned on me that Daredevil is the mainstream superhero character that you've worked on the most in your career. How do you feel about contributing to his legacy and what compels you to keep coming back to that character? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex character and it's interesting. I, you know, I could ask the same thing probably of my contemporaries on it too. You know, Sienkiewicz and Klaus, um, you know, and Alex and Brian have all done amazing work with that character, you know, and they're, and, and they've, they've done very visual work with the character. That's very, there's something about Daredevil that maybe because he's so, he has a much more simplistic costume or the fact that there is a visual aspect to him because he's blind somehow leads to a lot of interesting experimental visual approaches with the character. You know, if you, if you look at his history, you know, from Maza Kelly to Sienkiewicz to, you know, Frank Miller, um, Gene Colan, you know, Wally Wood, there's Klaus Jansen, there's uh, John Romita Jr. There's all these really fascinating, diverse approaches uh, to that character. Um, but myself, I, I, you know, I did, I wasn't that, when I was, my introduction to to Daredevil was, I was about nine years old, and I, I did, I grew up without a, t- a television, so I didn't really have access to comic books or films or TV until I was much uh, older, and I was at a, a friend's house, and he had a Frank Miller Jansen issue of Daredevil, where it's that Angel Dust story with the Punisher shooting Daredevil on the cover, and the Punisher is in the story, and that was my introduction to the character, really my introduction to comics. So, and I was about nine years old and I, I started looking through this book at this, you know, friend's house and it was, here's the Punisher and a skull outfit, you know, shooting drug people. And, you know, it was, it was pretty visceral, crazy experience. And, uh, it was, it was outside of my comfort zone. You know, I had seen like super friends or something. And so a few years later, I ended up finding by accident or just sheer coincidence, 
at a secondhand store, I found uh, the actual very next issue of that story. And maybe I was like 12 or 13 and I could sort of handle it now. And I could see what went into the making of the story. You know, I, I could see, you know, here's, here's the creators, Frank Miller, Klaus Janssen. And I could see they were using shadows and panel layouts and design and close-ups and everything at the disposal of telling the story and giving a sense and a feeling of this. And I was just fascinated. I was really hooked. And so I found a, an interview of Miller and Jansen called the Daredevil Chronicles. The interviewer was Peter Sanderson. And I read the interview of what they put into you know, the storytelling. And, they, and Miller cited Will Eisner. So then I, you know, I'm like 13. I, I, this is pre-internet. So I, I looked up, um, you know, the Will Eisner's book, How to Draw Com or Comics and Sequential Art by Will Eisner, and ordered it through the mail and, you know, and studied that. So it is really, in a way, Daredevil has a special place in my heart, Daredevil and the Punisher and that story and those creators, because it was really my main introduction to comics as an art form and sort of the beginning of my education of being a storyteller. Mm -hmm. Well, and the last question I have is, do you have any more stories in mind for Matt Murdock? Well, that, that's the fun of like, anytime you do a story, it almost a asks more questions than you're able to answer in the story. So there's, you know, there's so many like side stories that you kind of invent as a writer in the process and origins, the characters and what they would do next and, and so on, um, that, you know, a lot of things that I, I would think out about a lot of the characters in this past story and previous stories that um, not all that information makes it to that particular story. And we did get a lot of response about, you know, wow, you know, is there going to be another Daredevil end of days? Are you going to follow some of the characters from it? Hmm. And and also a lot of people loved our take on the Punisher and a lot of people have been asking for a Punisher series from us. And I, you know, I, I, Brian and I have sort of talked about and toyed with the idea of we love the sort of we every single character creator on the project thinks of this Daredevil story as real and as canon and as this is Daredevil's final final story, even though it's 10 years in the future. And almost like probably the best comparison would probably be, I guess, especially since Klaus Janssen worked on it, probably uh, this is almost like a Dark Knight Returns. But for Daredevil, it's probably the closest comparison you could make for what the story is in a way for comics mm -hmm. just in terms of the structure um and so we we've really we've toyed with the idea of here's this interesting world and these new create these these characters and and we've seen where everyone is at this point and we like you know we like you know electra electra as soccer mom we like <laughs> these characters in this different place and they've never been before and so i talked with brian i was like you know what might be interesting is uh it would be, you know, and people do want to see what happens to the new Daredevil and the new stick. And I said, you know, not not necessarily doing a brand new Daredevil story. What would be fun is if we did a Punisher story, but we make it that Punisher. We make it that world 10 years in the future. And then as, um, you know, can't you can have cameo appearances of that new Daredevil and of the new stick and of the new Elektra and mm -hmm. all of these characters. You can have they can sort of cross paths in the main story, just like we had a lot of characters, you know, cross paths in this story, you know, and you can explore other characters and where they're at. And it might be a fun thing to toy with. So we've, we've discussed this idea a little bit and I think we're all, you know, a little fascinated with the possibilities of it. Um, but none of it's set in stone. Well, it sounds fantastic. It's definitely something I would look forward to reading. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me about Daredevil and the art and just everything, David. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, I really enjoyed discussing with you. 
thanks for the you know insightful questions and discussion. Have a good rest of the week, and uh, I will uh, talk to you on Facebook soon. Okay, thanks. All right, bye, David. Bye. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Colloquium with David Mack. The Daredevil End of Days hardcover, which features all new pages of bonus material, is now on the stands. If you have not read it, I recommend you do so immediately. Also, if you live around the Los Angeles area, or you can make a road trip to the city, definitely drop by the Century Guild Gallery starting July 27th to view David's incredible brush and ink paintings. David will be there that day for the opening at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. For more about David's art gallery and images of his paintings, visit the Century Guild website at centuryguild.net. For more about Colloquium, visit sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. If you listen to this cast, chances are you're a big Daredevil fan like me. If you are, you should pick up the Sequart book, The Devil is in the Details, which examines both Daredevil and his alter ego, Matt Murdock. You get great essays about his troubled history with love, his relationships with Foggy Nelson and Spider-Man, and some insightful looks into classic Daredevil stories. Huge thank you to the amazingly talented John Rafano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonnet, whose first full-length album, Known Flood, is out now on Sacrament Records. Their debut is getting incredible reviews everywhere, so if you like heavy, atmospheric music, you should definitely give it a listen or buy the MP3s at sonnet.bandcamp.com. Sacramentmusic.com also offers a vinyl edition along with t-shirt bundles. Until next time, chums.